This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Last week, Dan spoke to me about advising healthcare startups, mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, and investing in healthcare startups. And today, we explore why capital raising may not be your best option all the time, and what high-quality revenue is, and further insights into the industry. Let's jump in. Your syndrome, I think it's um, it's a great insight on your behalf, um, and especially, uh, you know, we're talking about it in the context of the founder or the entrepreneur now, who's re- reading the headlines and thinking, um, oh, this is easy. Um, I could do this. Um, and I do think you, you've got to have a great level of self-belief uh, to go into startup um, as a starting point. It doesn't mean you're the right person for the job. It doesn't mean you have the right skill set, the right experience. Hence why um, accessing uh, advisors who do have the experience either personally or via a portfolio of accrued and synthesized knowledge um, across a, a portfolio. Um, but on the other side of the ledger is the investor. And what I've been seeing, um, not just in health tech, but in previous industries that I was involved with, um, that investors tend to think in a fairly you know, similar way as well. Uh, and, and that is that uh, they're all looking for the unicorn. Yeah. Right? So are, are they subject to the financial review syndrome as well? Are they sort of looking at life and going, oh, if it's got to be a billion dollar opportunity. We've got a 10 exit, yeah. right? And you hear all these... Um, uh, shift from the hip acronyms coming out of the industry. What's wrong with a $50 million business? What's wrong with a you know $25 million business? Why is everyone always chasing the unicorn from an investor's standpoint? Can, do you got any insights on that? Uh, I, I, I could have a guess. I mean, I think, I mean, risk and reward are intertwined. So, People involved in your community on reimagining healthcare are at the top end of the risk spectrum. And that's just, you know, anyone in venture capital, it's top end of the risk spectrum. And the bottom end of the risk spectrum is government bonds, cash. uh, And then, you know, it goes up the chain, you get blue chip equities and, well, you get houses, then you get blue chip equities and until you, and then you get private equity and then you get venture capital. And then beyond venture capital, you get angel investing. And, you know, early C stage, extremely high risk. So um, not all your listeners will understand what a discounted cash flow is, but, you know, you're talking risk-adjusted cost of capital to justify an investment of this something like 40, 50, 60% a year is the return you want to end up getting um, to compensate for all the losses that you're going to make on the other ventures. So if you're investing a million dollars into something that's only going to be a $5 million business in five years, and you work out what the compound return on that is, it's probably about 30%. It's it's It doesn't even meet the benchmark. Now, to be clear, that would be an outstanding investment if it came off, but they have no guarantee of it coming off, so therefore they're not prepared to take the risk. They're prepared to drop a million or $2 on something with a very outside chance 
of getting to $100 million and they'd rather do that than drop $1 or $2 million on something that has quite a good chance of tripling their money, I guess. Um, so that is the logical, rational reason. Um, the But on the other hand, like for me, myself, when I think about the sort of businesses I'd like to be involved in, I think just businesses that generate a few million dollars in profit a year uh, and if they're SaaS businesses with high revenue quality uh, and recurring income, that's amazing because, you know, $3 million a year at an interest rate of, uh, at an interest rate, when we've got interest rates that well, used to be 2%, now we're about 5%. But you can, if it's stable and predictable, you can multiply that by um, one divided by um, the cost of, you know, uh, an interest rate, really, um, people won't value it at that highly. But if you know it's that stable once you own this thing, um, then to you, it's worth that much. So something generating $23 million a year in a 5% interest rate environment that's very, very low risk is really worth at least a 25 multiple. That's assuming it gets no growth. And if it's got growth out there, it's worth a 30 times multiple. Now, to be clear, the market won't pay that. I'm not going to say people can get those valuations, but you as a founder should be thinking about holding that forever because it's just a, it's an annuity income stream and it, it can look after you or whatever charitable endeavors you want to pursue in your, in your post-startup life. And it's better than getting the cash from a deal. I think that is um, really good advice uh, because I think a lot of founders get smitten by the idea of the exit. Uh, and yeah. sort of cashing in, but um, if you've got, uh, well, let's let's reach into, I guess, some of our childhood stories. We we all have heard the story about the golden goose, so to speak. And um, in a sense, when you've got a strong cash flow, net positive cash flow business uh, that is stable, predictable, reliable, um, then you can actually look at that in perpetuity. And uh, assuming that the management team doesn't go off the rails or embark on some sort of parallel you know, business plan that has nothing to do with the core business, um, but can but can react to changes uh, in a in a sensible way. Then you've got something there that's going to um, be uh, very good for the business owners for a very long period of time. And there is some kind of value there that um, perhaps uh, uh, the other side of the ledger, the the buy side, would like founders not to understand that or not to um, have an appreciation of that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fair enough because they've got to earn their crust as well. And and look, and I'm very cynical on the um the buy side as well, particularly in venture capital. I mean, we are there are some incredibly spoiled investors out there. I'm not talking about investors who are happy to invest a million dollars in an extremely high risk proposition. Whatever valuation they've got, they are not spoiled. Good on them for having a go. And I would encourage founders not to get too upset about terms on a deal like that. I'm talking more about more established stuff. I come across so many investors, even at the small end of town, who are wanting to pay five times EBIT on something that's a stable cash flow. It's just it's just extraordinary. It, they're, they're acting as if, you know, and, and like you say, they're complaining. There's no good quality businesses out there. Um, yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're sort of chasing the uh, the headline headline type uh, result. So there's, there's a couple of things you were sort of um, touching on there, which would be good to unpack a little bit more. Um, you talked about revenue quality. Um, what, what does that mean to you? 
Well, um, let's, um, I'll be transparent and say, well, there's a spectrum of revenue quality and it's worth, it's worth um, more um, to have high quality revenue, to point out the obvious. Um, the lowest quality revenue, this is where I'm being transparent, is the revenue that I earn as an advisor, any consultant, one man band consulting. You can't get a lower quality business in terms of business ownership than that. And I, and the sort of work I do as an advisor to, to firms, less lower revenue quality than um, than even a one-man band accounting firm because the one-man band accounting firm, they've got much higher revenue quality because all their clients are going to come back every year. Um, even a one-man band legal practice um, has got a higher revenue quality because they're doing quite transactional work and whilst their clients won't come back every year, quite a lot of them will. Um, uh, and then you go up, so so in other words, volatile, non-stable revenue, which is reliant on the person who's out there doing the, um, the owner, is reliant on the owner, is the lowest quality revenue. Now, the, the highest quality is just the direct opposite to that. That is revenue that is recurring, it's secure, and you don't have to do anything to get it. Um, so you know, an, an annuity. Um, you know, younger listeners probably don't even know what an annuity is, but it's a policy invented by life insurance companies where they'll just you know put a hundred, put a hundred thousand or million dollars of your savings in, and they'll pay you a, a regular income stream for the rest of your life. Um, so you've got that guaranteed. But so an annuity business, you know, something like Microsoft, um, people are not giving up their um, their office suite software, at least unless there's a significant disruption, there could be, but we've had disruptions and Microsoft has proven itself as an organisation that seems to wet the storm. Um, you know, I would not put Facebook, for example, at, at that level because Facebook would be much more likely to be disrupted by the next big thing. It already is being disrupted by the next big thing and for that reason I wouldn't put TikTok at that level as well. Um, of course, these organisations are worth a lot of money, they make a lot of profit. But in terms of are they sustainable? Um, well, yes, to an extent, but not as sustainable as, as some other companies like a software as a service company like yours, Yani, um, or, or other companies where it's just regular income stream. You know, something like I can think of a service, Education Perfect, which is a service I come across from my child's education. It's just a platform. It's amazing. The schools love it. Um, it, it it's a platform that um, teachers can use to educate their kids, paid for by the state government. You can't imagine that contract's ever going to go away. The same with anyone providing services to hosp public hospital companies. Um, once they're providing that service, the hospital is not going to leave them unless they get a disaster with it. Um, and whoever set up that company is doing nothing to ensure that the business comes in once the contract's already in place. That's the highest revenue quality. Yeah, and and so that flows to valuation. A lot of people might not understand this. So financial guys just get this intuitively, um, but non-financial guys don't. So revenue is not revenue. So if you've got low re low quality revenue, you're obviously going to get a much much lower multiple on that than a high quality revenue. So again, a little bit of financial review syndrome here when you see all these companies with ten times, twelve times, fourteen times revenue multiple. Generally, I mean to be clear, I think. There was a lot of overpayment and overvaluation going on. But aside from that, um, they were only going to companies with software as a service, which happens to be very high revenue. 
you've got growth outlook, you've got stability, you've got high margins for every incremental dollar that you earn in revenue will blow straight to the bottom line. So that justifies a very high revenue model. So um, if, if I could just sort of paraphrase um, uh, and summarize. So uh, uh, there's a spectrum of quality that um, revenue can be seen as. So on the uh, one side is very low quality, on the other side is very high quality. And it seems a distinction on those, uh, on those, um, on that spectrum is that if you're, um, if you're doing sort of one-off engagements, professional services where you are the deliverer of the service. So that, that could be an advisor, for example, it could be a, a health professional. Um, and you have no sense of whether that customer will come back at any point in the future. That would be on yeah. sort of an example of the low quality revenue. So it's revenue and it might be, it might be big invoice numbers and what have you, but yeah. it's by definition, the context of low quality implies that um, you kind of just doing this once-off gig and then you have to go find the next one, right? And so there's, there's, no, there's no guarantee to that revenue other than delivering that particular gig or that service or that consultation um, as a discrete unit and then you go off and hunt for the next one. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you have a persistently paid subscription um, uh, that um, either is uh, contracted or just by the sheer value of the service uh, that's being offered to the customer. The customer is just never going to cease paying uh, for that particular subscription. Um, and there are other factors. You already mentioned some really big businesses like Microsoft, for example, and Facebook, where you talk about just by their valuations now come about through perhaps so, so revenue quality is one factor, but then you're also talking about size and scale, and uh, there's a time for a business as well. What what would you be saying to a business owner or an early stage uh, founder? Um, you know, when when they sort of sit there and go, "Look, oh, Dan, I've got to raise some capital," and you're looking at their business and you go, "Look, I don't think that's the right move. I think your revenue quality is what we need to focus on." Um, yeah. But what then? Okay, let's say we've we've thought about the model. We've thought about how to establish a good quality revenue stream for this particular solution to a problem that clearly exists for a given market. What what does your experience suggest that um, is like a a rule of thumb that you know business young business owners should be thinking about? Hmm. I don't think I've got a rule of thumb, and that is because. Every business is so different. Even every healthcare startup is so different. And so it was interesting. I've never been asked a generic, I've never been asked generically what you've asked me. What's what's my general advice to a healthcare startup? And I honestly don't have any. And I don't have any because, you know, I, I do get people ring me up and 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 I always just barrage them with questions. I let them talk a hell of a lot more than me. Because I just have no idea until I've understood all the nuances of the business. So I did give the indication before that I'm averse to raising capital. Um, and so it may well be after, you know, my interrogation for a period, it would be clear that the best thing is to raise capital. Um, and and that would be in the situation where you've got a really good looking business and you're going, it looks like you're going to get there, but you do need a few million dollars to, to bridge breach you're getting there, um, of course, you should raise capital. You don't have the money yourself. Your, your dad doesn't have the money. 
uh, or your mum doesn't have the money either. And and so, um, and there will probably be people in that situation, you probably can get it as well. Won't be, still will be hard to get it, always is, but it won't be as hard as if you're at the idea stage. And the reason it won't be as hard because because we can see on paper, we've got a we've got evidence um, from the numbers that you're, you're very likely to get there. You know, smart investors, and most investors are pretty smart, they'll see that. And so they'll go, yes, yes, I want to back this. Um, so in that case, it makes sense. Another thing I want to provide some nuance in with revenue quality, um, and I've only thought about this as, as you asked the question, absolutely revenue quality is a real thing, but there is a time to to shoot for low quality revenue as well. And it might be in the very early days because as you said, Yanni, the low quality revenue tends to be bigger revenue, big blots of revenue. If you're a startup, that can be incredibly valuable because that is your capital effectively. So if you're working with, I don't know, some big hospital group or um, probably actually not likely to be working with a hospital group, but just say you, you, you're trying to pitch something to a sector and you've got a good contact with one institution and that one institution you're providing consulting services to and consulting and building of technology services to them, then that is the low-quality revenue that will give you the capital required to build the high-quality revenue um, just so long as you don't blow it all on, um, you know, you've got to make sure you make a profit on the low-quality revenue so you've got some surplus um, to put it, put it back into longer-term development. Um, so yes, no, no direct answers. If you if you keep probing me, like if you pretend that you are a founder, and I'd be happy to do the interrogation with you, and, and see where we end up. Yeah, I I think that uh, in there's in essence you, you've sort of uh, revealed one um, layer of it, which is that um, one size doesn't fit all. Um, that is the value of uh, I guess having, <laughs> having an advisor in the mix um, who can actually. Uh, pressure test some of your ideas, perhaps be a sounding board, um, perhaps figure out the right way to organize thinking. Because um, when I, I, actually, just as you were sort of talking about the time for low quality revenue, um, I can remember in a previous life um, being in a startup where uh, I, I didn't have the the syntax or the vocabulary um, that you're using right now, but it just seemed like an obvious thing to do was to chase a uh, a big one-off deal in order to establish working capital into the business that would then get us to the promised land, which was subscription revenue. Um, but we uh, we didn't have options to actually elsewhere to actually be able to raise capital or borrow. Uh, and so um, selling a large project actually became the way that we seeded uh, the business. Uh, so I have a first-hand experience of how, how that can be uh, a tactic to use. Um, but yeah, I think that's the value of kind of analysing your options and looking at um, where you want to get to and, and not put yourself in a position necessarily where it is very enticing to chase a big lump sum deal. Uh, but what tends to come with it is a more complicated business operating environment that can't scale as nicely. And so um, you're going to have to solve that problem at some point in time. Uh, and so uh, it's about being being aware of what your options are. That's probably the key. Um but you, you you don't have a rule of thumb, but do you have principles? Is there sort of, you know, when you're looking at, you know, when you're asking questions and you're probing, as you say, and you're trying to elicit the information that would help you either reflect back or uh, summarize or um, perhaps assist your suggestions and guidance, um, are you working from a, a set of principles? 
Yeah, I've never thought about it as a set of principles, but when you phrase it like that, I guess it is. It's a pretty boring principle. It's it's a dollar. So I'm uh, look. I'll never remember. Uh, I'll never forget. Um, the first time, very young in my career, when my boss in a treasury department, corporate treasury department, sat me down and, and spoke to me about how you value a company using discounted cash flows. It was it was a very exciting moment for me um, and something that in many respects has built the rest of my career on. Um, and th- that is a theory of how organisations are valued. And whilst in the startup land, we don't tend to do discounted cash flows for companies. Every investor has a kind of discounted cash flow in the back of their mind, even if they're not doing a discounted cash flow. They want to know, when is the money coming? When are you getting to profit? And how risky is it that you're going to get to that you're going to get there? And so I suppose all of my questions one way or another would come down to that principle. Uh, and in healthcare, that will come in the form of, is there an established funding stream? Is this a Medicare rebatable item or is there some other, is there an NDS? Is there a schedule, one of the funding stream schedules, does it come out of there? Or do you have, if not, do you have uh, anecdotes from a customer that they really want to buy this? They're getting to the question of risk and then the question of quantum is like how big is this market? And then there's the time value element of it, time value of money. So how long is it going to take you to get there? Are there are there roadblocks in your way? Do you have to build a big system? Um, and by the way, that can be good and bad. Um, it's bad obviously because you know it's harder to get there, but it's good because it's harder to get there. And if it's harder to get there, it's much harder for other people to get there. So once you're there. You've staked your tur and no one's going to bother competing with you if it's really hard. Um, so all of those questions, you call that moat factors, I guess. So all, all of those questions, it's those sorts of questions that try and get me, even though we haven't got a DCF value, something that enables me to con- sort of construct one in my head doesn't mean out of every conversation I'm going to come up with an intuitive valuation because that's a, that's a useless exercise. Um, but it does enable me to get a feel for how difficult would it be for this person um, to raise capital? Uh, and you know, what should you be doing? Should you, your screen froze? Oh no, you're back. All right. Um, I guess just a couple of things uh, to finalise. I guess uh, Dan, um, I like to look ahead. You know, this this uh, whole project with the podcast is about um, looking at reimagining healthcare and uh, looking at it from four distinct points of view, uh, one being the innovative healthcare provider, uh, the other being the health tech developer, uh, the third being the investor's perspective, and the fourth being the advisor's perspective. Um, and so mm. your perspective as an advisor fits really neatly into the mix. Um, and I strongly advocate for advice. Uh, I think uh, um, surrounding yourself with the best possible team of people is always preferable to not doing that. Um, and my argument on that is simply to say that, sure, you're smart enough to figure it out on your own, Mr. or Mrs. Founder. Of course you are. The problem is it's going to take you a very long time, right? And that opportunity cost of taking a decade or more to figure it all out and master it 
um, is an immense cost when you think about it from a, a shareholder's point of view or from an exit value's point of view. So um, probably a couple of questions come out of that would be, is Dan, are all advisors good or no? <laughs> so tell me more about that. And what's, what makes a good advisor? Well, let's firstly define advisor. So I, I guess we're talking about uh, a very nuanced area of advisors to organisations at very early stage or um, early stage or middling stages of development. Um, that firstly, there aren't many out there and there aren't many out there because it's really hard um, to look after yourself um, for obvious reasons. There's not a lot of money generally in the space. Um, so now of the ones that I, I don't know of many other people who do exactly what I do, um, I'm struggling to think if I can, you probably know some, but um, obviously, I'd agree with you. There's there's a small, a very small number of people. There are a lot of advisors, but there are a small number of advisors who actually specialise in healthcare. Yeah, um, and then the early stages as well. Correct. I mean, yeah, this is the even even further in the context of mergers, acquisitions, investments, capital raising, valuation. Um, yeah. it's 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 a fairly niche field. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've got the big consulting firms that we all know of and, and the boutique consulting firms that sit below them. And obviously you've got the investment banks. Um, but a lot of the time, some of the problems you'll find with those sorts of organisations is that they are ultra focused on generating revenue themselves, as they should be. They're a business. Uh, and... Um, and they're used to, I mean, if you're a consulting firm, the last organisation, you want to work with organisations like National Australia Bank, Telstra, Medibank, um, you know, Microsoft, companies that don't notice big, big bills. Uh, and they're the clients you want. They might not be your most interesting clients. They might, you might not learn that much when, you, when, you, when you're working with them. Um, and they might even hate your work and it's an awful experience, but you're not going to get any issue being paid a lot of money from them. Um, and and I think at the end of the day, when an advisor who does work with larger organisations and obviously the big four, um, they'll sometimes do uh, work with smaller organisations, but they will move on very, very quickly. And it is incredibly Doing a good job in this space is incredibly nuanced, and I believe it requires a lot of very detailed financial analysis to really and understanding of how you can make money in the healthcare sector, um, understanding of how difficult it is. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, all of that sectoral knowledge. Helps a lot, and sometimes you get advised. If you if 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 a founder, mostly your founder is going to be pretty smart. So if you're talking to a founder who really seems to know what he's talking about, um, then he's probably he or she is probably really good. Um, but if if you're just talking to a firm um, and you're asking them some pressing questions and they're giving you umming and ahhing or just talking about the process that they run uh, and this process is proven, I think um, that is just a good way to waste money, probably. I would, uh, I would tend to agree. So, lastly, Dan, um, let's look at it from the investor's point of view. Um, looking forward five, ten years, where would you be putting your money? 
in healthcare? What what are the big uh, opportunities? Look, I'll go where where other people aren't going because I reckon that's a good way to um, it's a good value for money bet if you like. So where everyone is going at the moment is you know whatever's the latest thing you know big tech um, stuff. As you said, you know guys that promised to be a hundred million dollar business. Um, I I I will be going for um, niche stuff um, that, like you said, could be a $2 million profit if it all goes well. And because it's not a very big prize, you can get it in at a really good price. Um, and also, I really like – I've always been anti- – I was terrible at sporting school. I hated competition. I hate going head-to-head with people. I just don't like it. I don't like trying to push people out of the way. Um, so I like going where there's no competition. So niche services, something new that genuinely adds value, um, solves some problems and could create uh, an ongoing revenue stream uh, is is where I'll be going. So sectorally, that could be almost anywhere in health. You know, it might be servicing, providing services in aged care, providing services in hospitals. It just needs to, to satisfy those criteria. It is not easy to come across ventures that, you go, oh, yeah, I, I want to put my money into this. Um, a lot of the, you know, the ones with the IMs running around um, that might already have capital behind them, uh, they're valued because they've got revenue and you're not getting a pretty particularly good value for money bet um, once it's got to that point where it's 5 or 10 or 15 million revenue. And I wouldn't, that's the space of the venture funds and because the venture funds are playing there, the, the value's already been bid up, so I wouldn't touch that sort of thing. I personally, I think the best value is at the very high end of the risk spectrum. And I guess talking to investors now, it's a case of using your judgment to work out, you know, is, is, how risky is it? Have, have have I got it? Has this one got a good chance of coming off? And can I, as an investor, actually make a difference and help these guys? And I guess even more critical, and it was a point you were making before, Yanni, is this the sort of person I was going to back? Are they an arrogant person that thinks they don't need help? Because when they don't need help, what that really means is that they've got some narcissistic characteristics about them. And sure, we, we see in the movies, um, uh, in documentaries, some of the big tech champions are narcissistic personalities and good on them. And perhaps to get to that level, if you're going to build a trillion-dollar organisation or a $100 billion organisation, you need that mindset quite possibly. I don't know. But I think from what I've observed, someone who is, like you say, ha- is very smart, very switched on, very confident, but has an element of humility about them, um, that they really value other people's expertise. Doesn't mean they take other people's expertise as gospel, but they they listen. They listen carefully and decide if they're going to accept or reject that advice. You want to be backing someone like that. So sorry, I can't give you a sex sector, but anything that's SaaS in healthcare and niche um, and unlikely to attract competition is where I'm going. That's very good. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate your insights and your time today. Um, can't believe that doing discounted cash flow models and spreadsheeting is not considered a sport uh, because you'd be an absolute gun at that. Uh, gold medalist at the Olympics. Uh, but I really appreciate your time today and your insights and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing how this uh, industry we uh, uh, we so love um, continues to grow and how it innovates going forward. Well, I've enjoyed it too, Yoni. It's uh, really, really nice, friendly chit chat. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. God bless you. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.